You're listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast, where you'll learn how to earn income, live better, and put your money to work for you. Here's your guide on your path to personal profitability, Eric Rosenberg. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to the Personal Profitability Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric Rosenberg, and I'm excited today for episode number 30, the big 3-0, the dirty 30, and we have another special guest for you here today. I know you guys are all probably wondering, like, how is every guest special? It's because I work hard to find some of the most awesome people out there, and if there were someone who represents all of the cool things of unicorns and rainbows... That is the person we have on the line. And I'm speaking, of course, about none other than Paula Pant of Afford Anything. Say howdy, Paula, to everybody. Howdy. How's it going? I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, uh, so Paula, if anyone is not familiar with Paula yet, so she, I met actually at, uh, I know FinCon comes up a lot on this podcast. I met her at the very first FinCon in mm-hmm. a uh, trendy Chicago suburb called Schomburg. <laughs> I don't know if we could really call it trendy, but um, (laughs) it's it's home of one of the uh, largest malls in the United States out of Minnesota. So that's its claim to fame. They have a really big mall in Schaumburg. I I didn't know that. Actually, right after FinCon, one of my buddies who lives in Chicago picked me up and we went and walked around the mall because we had a little time to kill before going to the airport. (laughs) And uh, so I've I've now been to America's biggest and second biggest, I think, malls. Um, Huh. Yeah. So a little tidbit of, uh, of Chicago suburb history or... Or claim to fame. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so Paula has a site called Afford Anything, um, which is totally well named for her motto. It's, um, you know, Paula has a very similar philosophy to me of, you know, don't get so frugal that you're hurting your life. You know, go make more money and figure out how to live the life you want. So, um, so that's Paula's shtick. If you, uh, you want to throw out an elevator speech if I missed anything? Tell people a little bit about you and your background and your site. Sure. Um, so exactly as you said, the idea behind the site is to really focus on earning and investing. I'm a little bit about myself is that I'm I am a recovering penny pincher. So back in the day, I used to be obsessed with penny pinching. I used to be obsessed with frugality. You know, I we didn't have a whole lot of money starting out. We, uh, we were immigrants. My, my family and I immigrated to the States when I was a child. Well, I, I mean, I was like a baby. I was in diapers, but you know, we just, um, we, we always got by, but we lived a very TJ Maxx sort of life. And I just carried those lessons of frugality with me into my adulthood. And I eventually realized that being obsessed with penny pinching was, was actually hurting me. And ironically, it was actually harming my net worth because I was devoting so much time and energy to focusing on frugality that I wasn't turning my my limited attention to figuring out how I can earn more and how I can then invest those earnings. And once I started doing that, once I pointed the needle in that direction, Things got much better. I began earning more. Uh, I developed a, a big rental property portfolio. So now I'm a real estate investor. Uh, my, my whole life changed once my mindset changed. So speaking of real estate, that's actually the first thing I wanted to ask you about. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm actually considering uh, becoming a real estate investor myself, though we're moving down to California, which uh, real estate costs a little bit more than it does here in uh, Portland, which isn't even cheap. Here. So um, when you were starting out, you know, I, I know 
the hardest part. You know, it's hard enough to save up for a down payment for a house, let alone a down payment for an investment property. Mm-hmm. So what were your steps starting out? How did you decide on real estate? And what did you do to really get the ball rolling there? Sure. Well, one of uh, what I did was that for the first house I ever purchased, I instead of buying a single family home, I bought a triplex, which is a building that has three units in it. And um, my partner, Will, and I moved into one of the units and then rented out the other two. And actually, we took it a step further. We moved into one of the units with roommates and then rented out the other two. So there's a little of that frugality coming through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so that was how we were able to do it. Now, officially, any building that is four or fewer units qualifies as residential. So you can buy a building with four or fewer units as a primary residence if you live in one of those units. Uh, if it's five or more units, if it's a building that has five or more units, it qualifies as commercial. So the financing is a lot harder. Um, So for people who mm -hmm. aren't familiar with that, you know, I don't know if you know, if you knew this, I used to be a bank branch manager and one of my jobs was deciding if people got a mortgage. So yeah. So for people who, uh, who have no background in real estate, just to elaborate on that for another Mm -hmm. moment more. So when you get a mortgage loan, if you've never gone through the process before, they look at your credit history and all, all these different factors, your income. And then they look to see, can you really afford this property, generally requiring a 20% down payment, though sometimes you can do less and get private mortgage insurance. With commercial properties, as Paula said, five units or more, a lot of those leniences towards having less to put down and somewhere they might say, oh, well, your credit score is not quite there. All that gets thrown out. If it's an investment, you have to really, really have your ducks in a row and a lot of cash. So, yeah. So, and, uh. And Eric, elaboration, continue Paula's story. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I realized that I just threw out the phrase primary residence without actually explaining what that means and why that's important. So, Eric, as you know, when you apply for a mortgage, you can either get what's you can either apply for a mortgage for your primary residence, which means it's the place that you're personally going to live full time, the place where you sleep and wake up and live your day-to-day life. You could also home. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, You could also get a second home mortgage or you could get a mortgage for an investment property. Now, generally speaking, um, a mortgage for either a second home or particularly for an investment property is generally speaking, going to have a higher interest rate. They're going to be a little harder to get. You know, they're going to scrutinize you a little bit more. If this, the quote unquote, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it standard, but the, when you say the word mortgage, the first thing that most people think about is actually the primary residence mortgage. So that's the thing that, that's the model that you're used to. And, and that's the benefit of buying a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex, if you're interested in starting out as a real estate investor, is that you can buy one of those with the same ease as you would if you were just buying a house for yourself, a single family home for yourself. And one trick I've heard from, like, I know our friends over at like Bigger Pockets, that's a, a big real estate site. You know, <laughs> some of our friends over there, you know, they tell stories about how when they get started, they buy one property that they live in so it can be their primary residence and they can get that best mortgage rate. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's kind of cool down the road, if you move out and keep the property, they don't say, oh, well, you don't live there anymore. So your interest rate's going up. Once the loan's locked in, the loan's locked in. So you can move, but you have to actually move 
and live in another house. And that's a way to get a second property if you can afford it. Exactly. keeping the first one. And you can do that, I think, up to eight mortgages is the rule that um, yeah. they cut you off at. Something De- around there. <laughs> depending on the banker, it's it's either four or eight. Well, well, between four to ten, depending on who you're talking to. And if you are in a relationship with a spouse, sometimes if you don't get those mortgages as joint mortgages, you could double that number because mm-hmm. you can each have mortgages. But then they look at your income separately. It gets, it gets complicated, but... So let's right. let's bring it back down to that first one. So you got a, a, a triplex, yes, and so, um, lived in there with a roommate and had two tenants. What was that experience like? Uh, so the good part about it is that so I would say that it's like ninety percent good, but then ten percent there are some pitfalls that you should be aware of. So the ninety percent that was good is that if you are just starting out as a landlord or as a real estate investor, living in the property that you also manage living in your investment property, it facilitates that learning curve and it really facilitates those training wheels because unless you really do your homework in advance, which I probably should have done, but I didn't, you know, unless you, well, for most people who are starting out, you're not going to have any systems. And if you've, as, as Eric, as you know, as, as anybody who's ever run a business knows, your business becomes much easier. I would, I don't want to say easier, but more streamlined once you have systems and processes in place. It's more efficient. Exactly. It becomes more efficient. That's exactly the word I was looking for. That's my favorite business word. Is efficiency. <laughs> and so if you're a beginner real estate investor, you're not necessarily going to have those efficiencies in place. And the fact that you live in the property makes it, uh, it kind of compensates for those inefficiencies because you don't have to waste time commuting there. You're already there. So if there's anything that you need to deal with, you're there. You're, you're right there to, to keep an eye on it and to deal with it. And then in this, over the course of doing that, that's when you learn the landscape and you figure out what those systems and processes should be. And, and you really start to kind of gel it in place as a business. So that's what I like about it is that it gives you, it really facilitates that, that beginning period, that trial period. Were there any big surprises? Did you ever uh, get a call from, from your neighbor slash tenant at three in the morning that a pipe broke or something like that? Or um, was it generally a pretty good experience living and landlording in the same location? So one thing that I'll say about it, uh, the, the kind of the downside to it, I think there are two major downsides. One is that any little thing that goes wrong, if it's something that's so small that a tenant wouldn't normally call their landlord about it, they would come to you, especially if they're your roommates. I didn't really get this from the other units, but our roommates would come to us for any little thing the, the type of thing that you just wouldn't call your landlord about. Like, for example, this one time my roommate was like, oh, I think the, um, what was it? Oh, I think the dryer's broken because it just doesn't seem to be drying very well. And I walked over there and I looked at it and like nobody had cleaned out the lint trap and that was all there was to it. And I was like, yeah, you, you just need to clean out the lint trap. It also helps prevent fires. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, that's that's part of just what comes with the territory when you when you are when your roommates are also your tenants. There's a little bit of that expectation that you're kind of like their their 24-hour on-call concierge or handy, you know. So, yeah. that's that is one of the drawbacks of it. The other big drawback 
is that you get emotionally invested both in the property and in the tenants to a degree that can be a little bit unwise. So, um, you know, you want to over improve it beyond what would be justified because it's your home and you, you feel emotionally attached to it. So you want to make it nicer than it kind of quote unquote needs to be. Uh, and same with the tenants, you know, you, the, as a business principle, of course, you should never rent to somebody whom you're not willing to evict if it were necessary. You know, if you have a tenant who is not paying rent or who's breaking the rules, you know, you don't want to evict them, but you should in the same way that a boss would never want to fire an employee, but must always be willing to do so uh, should the situation require it. The same is true of a landlord. A landlord, you know, obviously you never want to evict a tenant, but you need to be willing to do it should the should that be necessitated? Some circumstances with you know financials and and protecting your property. It's protecting once you're the, when you're the landlord. It's your own mm-hmm. uh, it's your own money on the line. Right, so exactly. I totally understand that. But the problem is when your tenants are your roommates or your building mates. You don't you you are friends with them. Like you know you you watch Game of Thrones together. Uh, you watch. You know, you you go drinking together sometimes, you have meals together. And so it becomes a very different relationship and, and it really crosses that boundary between professional and personal. And that is actually, in my opinion, or in my five years of experience, because I ultimately ended up living there for five years, that was the biggest drawback to it sounds like a ridiculous drawback. Like, well, the drawback is that you make friends. But yeah, I mean, that is the drawback. The drawback is that you make friends. It's it's hard in in a lot of situations, not just in in the landlord's situation. You mentioned career, but any business relationship, you want to be friends with the people you work with. But at the same time, business is business. I used to do a few jobs ago, I was in a treasury department doing big capital leases. And we'd do these $20 million, $30 million a month type of deals and then our vendors who we did the leases through who you know we were paying 4 or 5% interest to would come to us you know so excited and want to you know take us on trips and buy us these fancy dinners and then we weren't allowed which was you know I understand why that is but th- those are the people that you want to become friends with and then you have to turn around the next month and say hey I need 5 basis points which um, right. 5 basis points doesn't sound like a lot and if you're for non-finance people that means um 0.05% a basis point is 0.01% but when five basis points is, you know, $10 million, those are, those are hard conversations. So definitely as a landlord, you know, think walking up to your roommate and saying, hey, I need my 700 bucks or my thousand bucks. That's not always a fun situation. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would have uh, tenants, like building mates slash tenants who would, for example, want to use their security deposit for the final month's rent. You know, and I'd be like, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that. And they're like, why? Are you planning on keeping my deposit? And I'd be like, well, no, but your security deposit cannot be used as rent. You know, and, and they would be like to them. They were like, but I thought we were cool. Like, you don't I thought trust we were me? Fre- Come on. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, so that that is the drawback. And that that's what, probably one of the things I was most excited about when I ultimately did move out of that triplex was, hey, cool. Now I can just be purely on a personal relationship. Uh, I'm sorry, purely on a business relationship with the people who live there. Do you still own the triplex? Of course. Yes. I, in fact, I own seven units now. Well, Will and I both own, we own seven units together. So I know you've moved around the country a bit. There's been mm-hmm. some Colorado, there's been some Georgia, there's been some, uh, some Nevada. 
Yeah. Is that tri? Where is that triplex? When did you get started on your journey? Sure. The triplex uh, is located in Atlanta. All seven of my units are located in Atlanta. And that's by design. Um, even though I personally have moved around a lot, I don't want to have to, re- you know, I have a business that is based somewhere, mm-hmm. which means that all of my my team, my electrician, my plumbers, my property managers, everybody is based in one geographic location. So if I were to start buying properties in multiple states, I would have to have multiple like contractors and suppliers in all of these different locations, meaning I would kind of have to reinvent the wheel every time I went to a different geographic locale. So by concentrating all of my investments into one location or one metro area, I know who my favorite window supplier is. I know who my favorite wholesale carpet supplier is. I don't have to figure out who that's going to be in a different state. So do you have plans to buy any additional properties in the Atlanta area? Are you happy with what you have? Are you thinking about adding things where you are? It sounds like that's a no. Um, Um, what's, what's, do you have any plans for your real estate business? You know, it's funny that you ask that. So I, on, on my blog, affordanything.com, I write a monthly income report, or I guess more accurately, I should call it a cash flow report where I showcase exactly how much money I brought in as gross income, how much I spent, including mortgages, including debt servicing, and then what the net cash flow left over is. And when I started, if you read the monthly income reports, you'll see that I typically bring in about 4000 to 5000 per month-ish uh, in net cash flow after all expenses, including PITI, principal interest taxes and insurance on the mortgage. Um, and when I started, sorry, so that was a bit of a long tangent, but <laughs> where I was going with that is that when I started investing in real estate, uh, that was my goal. My goal was to be able to produce about 50000 per year in net passive cash flow from all of the real estate investments. And now I've hit that goal. And like like any person who's hit the goal that they originally intended, I'm like, hi, I hit my goal. What's my next what, goal? Yeah, what's next? <laughs> so I don't know because I've I've reached the goal that I originally intended. So now I guess I need to find a different goal. That's why we can be friends because we're, we both have that goal-driven mentality. And every time I hit my goal, and I feel kind of lost when I hit a goal. I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. what do I do now? I guess exactly. I should go to Europe or something. I don't know, that, I don't know why that's always my, my fallback. I guess I should go on a trip to Europe whenever I... <laughs> uh, you know, for me, it was uh, when I hit my last goal, that was what took me over to the point where I could go full-time. I, um, you know, I, I, last year, I'd said my goal was $40,000 in revenue, and I hit it. And I turned to my wife, I said, wow, I did it. What do we do now? And I quit my job. So uh, hopefully I make, thank you. Hopefully I make quite a bit more than 40,000 going forward because I walked away from quite a bit more than 40,000. Yeah. So I I know that feeling. So, you know, I'd love to, uh, you know, maybe a year from now or so we can do a uh, Paula Pant interview number two and see what you decided. Yeah, definitely. I I would love to know that too. So Uh, I would. I'm curious. We're we're both curious together. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So one thing that I know you've you had a couple a great series of blog posts about was how you've used some of these investment properties as Airbnb investments to Mm -hmm. let people come in. And if you're not familiar with Airbnb, it's it's like using a person's hotel or or someone's apartment or house as a hotel. So. 
How did that work? Could you share some about how you decided to get into that and how that worked out? Sure. Well, um, so I travel a lot. I've been to 35 countries. And uh, when Airbnb became popular, I started, uh, my initial experience was just as a guest. So I would travel and I would stay in these Airbnb places. And of course, as an entrepreneur, naturally, once I did that, I began thinking, huh, I wonder if I could make money as an Airbnb host. So um, because I'm a landlord, because I have all these rental units, I decided that I would use one of the units. And again, I, I chose one of the units in my triplex so that I could be on site to manage. But I decided to use one of the units in the triplex as an Airbnb unit. And I committed to doing it for at least a year so that I could see what that experience would be like. And I did it very publicly. I documented everything uh, and said, all right, here, this is how much money I would earn. I estimated that at the time I could have rented out that unit for about 1100 per month uh, if it were on a long-term 12-month lease. So I said, all right, if it were a long-term 12-month lease, I could probably rent it out for 1100 a month. And my specific expenses, and I wouldn't have any specific expenses just for that unit per se. I, I would have the mortgage, of course, for the whole house and repairs and maintenance for the whole house. But as an Airbnb host, you have additional expenses that a landlord doesn't have. You know, you've got... Toilet paper. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you've got uh, what are broadly lumped as consumables. So toilet paper, dish soap, moisturizing cream, dish detergent, all of those consumables. You've got cleaning fees because you have to hire a cleaner every time that there's a turnover. You have, uh, I chose to do some additional landscaping beyond what I would have just done as a landlord so that when the guests arrived, they had a very positive first impression. So you have all the, you pay additional taxes in the city of Atlanta, which is where my property was. I had to pay an additional 16% sales and occupancy tax because of the fact that it was a short term, less than 30 day uh, duration of stay. That's similar so, to a tax you'd pay in a hotel. Right. Exactly. Exactly. A hotel tax, quote unquote, which is that's 8% in Atlanta. The way that broke down was is 8% sales tax and then an 8% occupancy tax. Okay. So those were all of the additional expenses that I incurred directly as a result of being an Airbnb host that were kind of additional overhead that a landlord wouldn't have. And so what I did was I just broke all of it down and I said, all right, well, here's yeah, I, and I didn't know if given all of those expenses and given higher vacancy rates, you know, slash lower occupancy, would it be profitable to run this as an Airbnb or would it possibly just be more profitable to stick it on a 12 month lease? Like that was a question that was in my head and I didn't know the answer. And so I thought, let's just run an experiment. Let's do it for a year and let's see what happens. Uh, so, so I did that and I documented it all at affordanything.com. And the eventual outcome was that I did earn more money as an Airbnb host. I earned over the span of a year about an extra $7,000, I believe, as an Airbnb host. After all of those additional expenses, I netted an extra 7000 But there was also a lot more work involved. You know, real estate at this point, I've systematized it to the point where it is very passive. And on my monthly income reports, I also document exactly how much time I spend. And it's less than five hours a month. So, you know, for $5,000. So That's a pretty good uh, return on your time invested. Exactly. I've exactly. got to get into this real estate game. 
Uh, <laughs> and it didn't start out that way, but it just came as a, you know, at this point. Over time, I, you build expertise. and Yeah, and you build systems and you build checklists and you build processes. And that's what allows you to make it passive and make it. And you build a team, of course, you know, that handles the, the day-to-day, a lot of the day-to-day work. So, yeah, so real estate, I've gotten it to the point, traditional 12-month leases, I've gotten to the point where it's very passive and very hands-off. And Airbnb just could not be passive. It's it's just, it's not. It's a job. It's not a passive investment. And I think the best way to really explain the difference between the two is that uh, when you are a landlord, you're a buy and hold real estate investor, you're in a commodities business in a sense. You know, you are in the real estate industry. Whereas with Airbnb, you're in the hospitality industry. And that's a, hospitality is a very different industry than real estate. Definitely. I could, I could see that distinction. So did you, did you try to build any systems around the Airbnb thing or? I did. You know, my single biggest failure as an Airbnb host was my inability to find a, a reliable person who could facilitate each turnover. If I could have found that, that person, that one key person, I think I could have made it a lot more hands off. But the problem is I, I couldn't find that reliable, because you don't just need a cleaner, you need like a general project manager. So for example, if a guest says, hey, I need more X, you know, hey, I, for example, this guest checked in and on our listing, we allow uh, parties of up to, I think, four to stay at the unit, but we only had one bed. So if more than two people were staying, then we would bring out um, an air mattress for the you know, additional third or fourth person. So this, we had this one particular guest who booked, like they made a reservation for two people and then they showed up as a party of three or four. And so when they arrived, they were like, well, we need an extra, we need that blow up mattress. But they didn't tell us that in advance. And unfor- and this guest, we happened to be out of town when they were, sh- when they came. So we didn't have that mattress prepared for them. And so it's for for instances like that where you really need not just a cleaning person, but a manager who can then say, oh, okay, well, here, I'll bring you the mattress and I'll I'll air pump it and I'll set it up. You know, you you need somebody who can do that, someone who's reliable and who's also cost effective. And I wasn't able to find that. Now, there are platforms that offer, quote unquote, digital management, meaning meaning that they will facilitate email, like electronic correspondence with the guests but there's digital management is not the problem. Like that, those companies are solving the wrong problem. You, need, you know, what, you need what the you person really who's need. on the ground who can be there and help when you need a person. Exactly. Sounds like. Exactly. Exactly. And so traditional vacation rental properties charge a premium that is so high that it's not profitable for Airbnb landlords. There's just, there's not enough margin to pay a, a traditional vacation rental management company. So there's not enough margin for that. And the, the Airbnb management industry hasn't yet uh, matured enough to the point where they have boots on the ground managers in, you know, they, they may have those in major cities like New York or San Francisco, but certainly in a city like Atlanta, that isn't there yet. So uh, I do think that industry will mature eventually. So maybe a year from now or two years from now, when we come back to this podcast, it might be the case that at that point, there's a, a you know, that need has been filled. But at this point, there's 
there's just no boots on the ground management that is available at a price point that makes sense for an Airbnb host. So, so everyone um, who's listening, yeah. who's been trying to figure out how to make your first dollar on the side, Paula just gave you an idea. Write <laughs> yes. that down. Yeah. Become an Airbnb manager. And yeah. uh, there, there's a way to make your first dollar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would gladly pay for that. So you've already got a customer too. It's, it's two for one. <laughs> if you're in Atlanta, you know, go to afford anything and hit the contact form. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So well, we'll change gears a little bit. And you said you, um, you tr- you've traveled to 35 countries. You've been all over the world. How has your career and your business management incorporated into that and allowed for that? And what do you do when traveling to make sure everything's still running right? Okay. So are you referring to real estate specifically or business um, in general? Getting more general. Okay. You can talk um, about your other businesses as uh, as you answer if you'd like. Okay, sure. Um, I guess, well, I'll start with real estate just because it's what we've been talking about. So the re- there's the strategic reason that I chose buy and hold long-term real estate investing as opposed to, say, flipping houses or wholesaling or some other strategy is because buy and hold could be passive you know, you, you develop systems, you develop checklists, you develop processes, and then you put a team in place that executes on that. So I never get the 2 a.m. my pipes are broken phone call because there are other people who get those calls. You know, if, if that call were to happen, it wouldn't come to me as the owner. It would come to the people who are are paid to get those calls. Right. And then um, at the I'm guessing at the end of the month, you get a... Uh a statement or they call you for permission if it's a repair over a certain amount. Something exactly. Like that. Yeah. So I have property managers. I've, I've given them carte blanche. Is that the term? Uh, I've, I've basically given them a blank check to make any decision that is $600 or less without consulting me. Okay. So that's, that type of arrangement is pretty common in property management. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. sharing for other people who aren't as familiar. Yeah, exactly. And I have a contractor also who I've been working with for a long time who, um, yeah, I, I actually, in one of my most recent blog posts, I actually took a screenshot of a text message that I sent him and posted it because I want people to see the, the type of relationship that I've built. I just sent him a text message. I knew that the tenant had been, we have a water heater that's kind of old and the tenant had complained about some water heating issues. And so I just sent him a a text message. It took me two minutes where I said, hey, I know that thing is old. When you go there to check it out, please check its age and its condition. And if you you have my permission to make a judgment call as to whether or not it should be replaced, if you think that this thing is eh, kind of on its last legs, then let's just proactively replace it with a new one. Like I'm not, and this goes back to, what we, Eric, what you and I were talking about earlier about not penny pinching, uh, I am not going to try to penny pinch and say, well, maybe we can squeeze another six months of life out of this water heater. Then like, you end up in a stressful situation, right? Exactly, exactly. So why try to like penny pinch and eke another six months or a year out of something that's on its last legs? Like, no, be proactive, replace the darn thing, and then you're never going to have to worry about it. So I very much designed my business in such a way that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proactive about repairs and I'm proactive about maintenance and I have a really good team in place. And as a result, I can go, uh, 
off to, to France or to Mexico or to uh, Egypt or to, to wherever I want to travel to Indonesia and not have to, you know, be on the flight worried that I'm missing some important text message. Do you have any favorite place you've traveled to? I know it's hard to have a favorite, but if you had to pick one. You know, I would, I guess I have favorites that are category specific. So if it was like favorite major city or favorite for the beach or favorite for meeting locals. Let's hear them. Let's hear all those three. Okay. Favorite for meeting locals is Myanmar. Um, My sister will be there in, uh, in two weeks. So I will tell her that. Oh, excellent. (laughs) So Myanmar, for the listeners who aren't familiar, it's also known as Burma and it, uh, It's not heavily touristed yet. I think it's going to become that way. Um, I think it's going to follow in the footsteps of Thailand and Vietnam and um, and Cambodia. Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, tourists who will do the Southeast Asia circuit. So they will travel to Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia. They'll they'll do that loop. My sister is doing Thailand and pegged on Myanmar as a uh, as a second location. She's not doing uh, the others, but oh, nice, nice, yeah. yeah. So, um, so Myanmar is becoming more popular, but as of now, it's it's not that heavily touristed, which means that you you get you still get a more authentic experience there. You're you're not going to like you don't feel like you're in Disneyland. I say Southeast Asia Disney. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that's and and then also because of all of the British influence there, a lot of um, Burmese people speak English. So, you know, you're kind of off the beaten path in a Southeast Asian country where you can speak English with a lot of people and, and therefore can connect with them on like a human to human level or a person to person level. So it's like the opposite of Paris. You know, I was actually surprised by the number of people I found in France who who spoke English. I think maybe because I had been hearing my whole life that that I wouldn't find people. So my my expectation was kind of on, you know, that I would find nobody. So then anytime I found somebody who was like friendly and willing to speak English, I I was like, wow. When I went to Paris, I found a bunch of people who I'm sure spoke English and just didn't want to with a tourist. That that was the impression I got. But anyway, (laughs) enough on Paris. So so uh, Myanmar was your favorite place to connect with the people, your favorite Mm -hmm. beach. Okay, so if you go to Indonesia, there is an island called Flores. You go to that island and off of the coast of Flores, there's a kind of coastal town called Laban Bajo. Take a boat out to this place called Saraya Island. It is way off the beaten path because most people who are in, who are going to Indonesia will go to Jakarta or they'll go to Bali. Those are kind of the more heavily touristed spots. So just by virtue of going to Flores, you're already kind of off the beaten path. And then when you go to an island off the coast of Flores, you're really in the middle of nowhere. And the beach is gorgeous. I mean, it's super remote. So don't go there if you're looking for like MTV spring break, you know, <laughs> um, go there if you just want the like outdoor, natural, natural world beach experience. Sounds very serene. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. I once went to, uh, I was on a cruise with my family and we stopped in Tortola, which Mm -hmm. is, it's a pretty big island. I I kept thinking of Pirates of the Caribbean because they go to Tortuga, which I don't even think is a real place. (laughs) We we went to Tortola and then took a uh, a, a, a shuttle boat, I don't know what you call it, Mm -hmm. um, a boat to Virgin Gorda, which is, you know, it's a little ways away. I don't remember a half hour, hour or so on the boat. Mm-hmm. And um, then we took a 
a um it was it felt very unsafe i uh uncovered <laughs> it was like riding the back of a big army truck or something all the way across the island which that was actually the first place i'd ever been in a car driving on the left side of the road which was kind of fun it's a british island Mm-hmm. And um, on the far side of Virgin Gorda, they took us to this super remote beach that there were some tourists. And then our uh, guide said, if you want the really good beach, you go take that path and be back here in you know four hours or whatever. And we took that path and went on quite a hike and ended up at this place. There were uh, maybe one or two other people on the entire beach outside of the four of us and my family. And um, same kind of experience. It was just fantastic. And then I later found out that they'd shot Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues there. I was like, oh, man, I came on the wrong day. <laughs> yeah. So so the other one, you said favorite beaches, favorite place to meet people, and favorite city, favorite, favorite. big city. Oh, man. Jeez, uh, I don't know if I should have said that because that this one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to throw several cities in here. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Uh, I actually really like Bangkok. Uh, I know not a lot of – I haven't heard many people who say that. Because a lot of people will go to Thailand and then leave Bangkok right away. But uh, I actually, I really liked it. It was, you know, it was large. There was lots of stuff going on. But there's there's this beautiful park called Lumpini Park that's like right there in the center. And it's just, that was my, it, it's amazing. So if you, if you do go to Thailand uh, and you have the time, don't just peace out right away. Like, take the time. Go explore Bangkok. Because it has a lot to offer. Yeah, every I time I hear the realize. word Bangkok, I think, you know that old 80s song, One Night in Bangkok? Oh, no, I don't think I know it's, that. There was a musical called Chess. And mm-hmm. it was a song in the musical Chess. And the only one that, only song probably that made its own, uh, you know, people have heard of. But it's, um, when, we, when we hang up, check that song out. It's super fun and you'll get a chuckle out of it. It's so 80s. Okay, cool. Because cool. one night in Bangkok. And people don't want to hear me sing. They want to hear you talk. So I'll stop singing. <laughs> so next favorite big city. Uh, so I really enjoyed Paris, of course. It's it's beautiful. It's like, it's just, it's like a fairy tale. The Musée, uh, my favorite thing in Paris, for as, as hard of a time as I give for the language barrier I had there. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a few, you know, everyone raves about the Louvre and I thought, you know, the Louvre was, was beautiful and amazing on its own, but the Musée d'Orsay, which is right mm-hmm. next to the Louvre, a lot of, you know, it's a big tourist museum also, but a lot less than the Louvre. Yeah. They have, if you go in the Musée d'Orsay and you have to find your way all the way to the very top, which the Musée d'Orsay is an old train station. So it's this really long, cool old building mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. whole top level is the greatest and most wonderful impressionist art exhibit I've ever seen in my life. I was just floored. It was like, you turn a corner and there's like, oh, there's another Monet. Oh, there's another Mm. Renoir. Oh, there's Whistler's mother. I thought that was American. And I was, I had a little proud moment. Ah, in your French art museum, there's an American painting. (laughs) Oh, you know, speaking of art museums, uh, the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. It was closed when I was in Amsterdam. Yeah. It was the same uh, trip I went to Paris. I, I uh, went to uh, the red light district was open and running, but the uh, the Van Gogh Museum was not. It's, it's, <laughs> it is worth going back just for that. I was I was never I was never a Van Gogh fan until I went to that museum. And now I'm I'm just obsessed. Yeah, his, his work is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, I just interrupted you mid Paris. Uh, oh yeah. So just favorite, uh, favorite cities or at least cities that I enjoy and appreciate. Um, Bangkok, Paris, Tokyo is really cool. 
Um, That's really it's, high on my list. I have a friend who was just there last week and was telling me over the weekend how she was raving about how great Tokyo was. And I was like, I got to go get that sushi. Uh, Tokyo's, you know, I'd, I've actually been wanting to go back to Japan because Japan was the first foreign country that I ever went to uh, without my parents. So when I when I was 18, it was the first foreign country that I went to as an adult by myself. And it was really the country that, that sparked my love for travel. Because prior to going to Japan, um, my whole life, I had, like I, I mentioned, I, I'm, my family were Nepalese immigrants. And so when I was a child, I grew up in Ohio and I would spend my school years in Ohio. And then every other summer slash every third summer, I would go back to Nepal. And I, I realized that when I say that, it sounds very worldly. But really what it meant was that my worldview was no bigger than Ohio and Nepal. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the whole world must just be these two places. Nepalese I, food is amazing. <laughs> like I, a lot of people have never had Nepalese food. Anyone who's listening, if you ever see Himalayan or Nepalese food, go eat it. Trust me. Thank me later. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's like the best of Chinese food and the best of Indian food had a baby and it's called <laughs> Nepalese food. Nice. Uh, that, that's the best description I've ever heard. <laughs> like soy sauce and curry, two of my favorite flavors unite. <laughs> and it's, it was every, everything I ate when I've been to Nepalese places is always just, I've never been unhappy. Ah, nice. Nice. So that's my jealousy of all your time. And uh, like if I were in Kathmandu, I would just go eat everything. I mean, I'd do more than that, but I'd have to <laughs> eat everything. <laughs> nice. Nice. Cool. All right. So yeah. So Paris, Bangkok, Tokyo, and actually, all right, if I can name one more, I, um, the old city of Jerusalem. You know, I used uh, to live there for a short bit in the, I spent a month in the old city. Oh, I spent six months in Jerusalem and another separate trip a month in the old city. I've spent probably about a year in Israel altogether. Nice. Nice. It's, I mean, and you can talk more about it than I can. Cause I was just there for, I was only in Jerusalem for a few days, but it, I've, I've just never seen anything like it. There's, there's just so much there. There's uh, a lot to take in in a very small place. A lot of people don't realize how small Israel is and how small Jerusalem is when, you know, it gets more than its fair share of news coverage, you know, 45 times over every day. But the, the city of Jerusalem is, um, it would probably two, three million people. It's, you know, no bigger than Portland where I live. You know, it's a lot smaller than Atlanta and the whole state is smaller than New Jersey or the whole country of Israel is smaller than New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, there's so much history and yeah, I love, I've, I, I go to Israel. I tried to, I was trying to go every other year, but when you get married and have kids and things, it, uh, seems to get longer and longer in between, but it's, mm -hmm. um, now you brought up a soft, a soft spot in my heart too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I really want to go back. So uh, next time you go, give me a uh, give me a ring first, and I'll tell you some some fun spots to stop in that are a little more off the beaten path. Awesome. And that goes to any listener too. Shoot me an email. I'm always happy to tell you anything Israel questions or anywhere I've gone. Um, so before we go, um, I want to end talking about afford anything. We've talked a lot about real estate and travel, but afford anything. Uh, that's your baby. That's your, mm -hmm. uh, your your face is front and center on the website online. That's your thing. <laughs> How did? Can you talk, talk a little bit about the genesis of that and where you think it's going in the future? Sure, absolutely. So when I started Afford Anything, I started it in 2011. And it was right after I had, um, actually, let me back up a little bit. 
So from 2008 to 2010, I, in 2008, I quit my job and I had had at that point about $25,000 in savings that I had, and it had taken me three years to build those savings. I was working as a newspaper reporter. My starting salary was 21,000 a year. And by the time I quit that job, I was at a salary of 31,000 a year. So I wasn't making very much, but I was super committed to saving money because I really wanted to go travel. So during the evenings and weekends, I would work side jobs and I after saved every dime after taxes. So every single penny of my side of my after tax side hustle income money was purely going into a travel fund. And over time, I built it up to twenty five thousand dollars. And then I quit my job and just went and traveled for two years, mostly staying in countries where the dollar exchange rate really worked in my favor. So that's why, you know, instead of going to Europe at that time, I was I was in Cambodia. You know, I was in places where the U.S. dollar uh, really meant something. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I did that for two years and I came back to the U.S. And so many people, every time I would talk about it, everyone would say, I would love to do that, but I can't afford it. That was the mantra that I kept hearing over and over. And being a person who was making $30,000, $31,000, excuse me, <laughs> at, uh, at, you know, at the job that she had quit, that just didn't, I just didn't believe that. I didn't buy that as, a, as an excuse because for the majority of middle-class people that I was talking to, you know, people who get pedicures and get their hair highlighted and eat at restaurants, uh, you can afford it. And so I started afford to make it a priority. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, the genesis of the blog was the idea that you can afford anything. You just can't afford everything. And so, uh, it began really as a blog about ruthless prioritization, decide what you value most and spend your money accordingly. Um, so if travel happens to be the thing that you value, then, you know, make your other life decisions based on that. So that was the initial idea behind it. And over time, uh, as, as I myself have grown over the past five years, the blog is, has also kind of shifted. So, uh, while that ruthless prioritization is still a major theme, I now also talk a lot about how that same concept applies to the way that you spend your time and your energy. Um, so, you know, I tell people don't devote loads and loads of time to clipping coupons and chasing buy one, get one deals because your time and your energy are your most valuable assets. I mean, time is more valuable than money. Um, I energy. totally, totally agree. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So, you know, be very prudent, be very careful about how you, how you spend that time and think about it in terms of return on investment, you know? Uh, and, and of course, when you're talking about time, you know, you can't work for 168 hours a week, you know, and, and I wouldn't tell anybody that they should. I'm, I'm certainly I've not. I've done safe. it for a couple of weeks ever. And I don't <laughs> recommend it. Right. Yeah. So I'm not telling people, oh, you should spend all of your time making money when it, that's not what I mean by the return on investment. What I mean is, you know, if you are only going to spend 40 hours a week working, how, because other non-financial aspects of your life, like family or travel or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you value are also important. So if you're only going to spend 40 hours a week working or being productive, how are you going to allocate those hours? Um, and how are you going to 
make them efficient. Um, so yeah, that's a big part of what I talk about at Afford Anything is, is that kind of ruthless prioritization and how that seeps into every aspect of your life. Great. Well, I hope that was enough of a, uh, a nail biter keeping people on the edge of their seat that they go and type in affordanything.com and check out everything Paula's up to. It's um, really a great site. And I have to say a very good looking site too, as oh. uh, as someone who may have been involved in building <laughs> it. Um, no, but Paula's, you know, everything she says on that site is really great. And it's, um, you know, genuine and honest, just like this discussion, it really hits home. And we all have a lot we can learn from Paula and everything she's done. So thank you so, so much, Paula, for being here, for being a part of it, for sharing your story. Um, aside from typing in affordanything.com into a browser, where else can people find you if they want to connect with you? Uh, no, that's the main one. So I would encourage listeners to go to affordanything.com and sign up for my email list, so that which is free. And that way you'll we can stay in touch. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at affordanything or facebook.com slash affordanything. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Really do go follow up, um, check out Paula's stuff. And uh, you know, always great to have another friend here on the podcast. So as always, everyone, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us, for listening to us. I was drinking a sake. I know I didn't say at the beginning to uh, hit pause <laughs> and drink your beer with me like I usually do. But oh, we no, well, that's it. perfect for the Japan conversation. That's true. It was totally. I, I had just finished my sake as we were talking about Tokyo. So, oh, nice. I know, but it was delicious. And, and now I'm in the mood. Now I feel like I need to go. There's a, there is a nonstop from PDX to uh, to Tokyo. So maybe I need to go hop on that before I leave. I, I think so. <laughs> well, wherever, wherever our travels may take us, um, I, I hope everyone enjoyed this. And we'll, uh, we'll all be together again for the next one. And until next time, stay profitable. Thanks for listening to the Personal Profitability Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on iTunes or share it with a friend.